Adventists and present truth. The term uh, present truth has a significance among Seventh-day Adventists. It's a specific term that applies to specific things, present truth. But in order to understand that, we have to go back a little bit in church history. So please bear with me as we go do that a little bit. I'd like to begin with the beginning and going back to the start of the Protestant Reformation. As we go back to the Protestant Reformation, as we go back and look at that, we begin which with, with uh, beginning with John Wycliffe, who was called the Morning Star of the Reformation. If you look at that date, he died in 1385. He was one who translated the Bible from Latin into English. And if you have ever read a John Wycliffe English Bible, you know how difficult it is to read because the language has changed so much in its meaning and in its words. It's a difficult thing to do. So John Wycliffe is thought of as being the beginning of the great Advent, I mean the great Protestant Reformation. As a result of that start, that beginning, we don't really think of him because uh, so much because other people came along after him that had even greater impact. And so we have uh, Wycliffe, we have Huss, who was burned at the stake, we have Zingley, we have Erasmus, and then Martin Luther. It was uh, Martin Luther who, in 1517, he was the one who started and he nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel. And that is tended to be the start, the thought of as the start date of the Protestant Reformation. But please understand, it went before that. There were times that it went before that. So what happened as he did that, that caused a great stir. It's called the Reformation because it was the idea of the Reformers to reform the church. They were not trying to start another church. They weren't trying to break off. They were trying to bring the church back to their principles that they thought were extremely important. And so Luther, because he was so influential in Germany, he was quite a scholar and a monk. He was brought before the Diet of Worms. I used to think as a kid that would be a terrible thing to eat. Would be it, but uh, that's not what that means. It means a council in the city of Worms. He was called before them, and if you are familiar with the story, there was this somewhat of a theological trial, and they were asked him, and they had all of his writings that he had written up on a table, and they asked him, Will you recant from everything that you've written in those books and in those papers? And he asked, Let me please stay overnight, let me pray about it. So they said, all right, we'll let you pray about it. So he waited overnight. The next day he came back and he gave that most powerful statement when he said to them, I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God, amen. Now if he had not been protected by the German princes at that time, he probably would have been um, Sacrifice and going. So from the Protestant Reformation came two great principles. Now they had more than that, but there were two great principles that stood in line, stood through the whole process, through the whole thing. These two great principles that were lined out with them, we should look at briefly. The first one they would say that salvation by grace alone. And Protestants have been heralding that since 1517, that the grace of God provides for us salvation free and gives it to us, to it. The second great principle that came out of that was the Bible 
and the Bible only. We don't take traditions, we don't take counsel, so forth. We look, is it in the Bible? And the question is, is it a teaching of Scripture That's, that hangs on the key? Does what you're saying, is the principle that you have, is the thing that you're laying out, is that taught in Scripture? That's the question that it raised. Not from traditions of the church, not from other councils or other things or the whims of men, is it actually taught in the scriptures that we have? And so they became like the show me state. Show me it in the Bible. Please show me where it is. So is it a clear teaching of the scripture? That would be the question. Is it a clear? Can you show it to me in the Bible? That's where it down. Well, what happened with um, Martin Luther is that he wrote down his discoveries of the discovering the truth that he found within the scriptures. So he wrote those principles down. He wrote those down as he was continuing to study in his life. He kept developing more, and as, the, as he continued to work, he got thrown out of the church, etc., etc. As he got printed, as he got his Bible, he wrote the uh, German Bible, uh, translated it, and, he got, and eventually what happened, they formed a Lutheran church. Wow. Now we have Roman Catholicism, and we have the Lutheran Church. Now, why were they called Lutherans? I bet you're bright enough to figure that out, because they were following the teachings of Luther. So if you were going to be a Roman Catholic, you'd believe that. If you were going to follow the teachings of Luther, you followed, you were a Lutheran. Now, what happened was that Luther died. I hope that's not a shock to some of you. But Luther passed away. And along came another man by the name of John Calvin. And John Calvin looked at the writings of Luther. And as he looked at the writings of Luther, he said, you know, I believe everything that Luther did, but there are a couple things there that I don't think he found quite right in Scripture. So he said, I'm going to have to indicate that these are the differences that I have from Luther. And his teaching. So he wrote those down, and I tell you, he wrote and wrote and wrote. He wrote these institutes, and they were huge volumes that you can still buy today, um, still purchase them. John Calvin was very prolific in his writing. And so what happens? Well, the problem was that if you said, John, you realize that you're teaching things that Luther didn't taught. Uh, didn't teach, excuse me. You're, you're doing those. So therefore, you cannot call yourself a Lutheran. So you're going to have to do something different. Either accept what Luther teaches, or you're going to have to do something else. So what happened was, he formed a group called the Calvinists. So now we have the Roman Catholic Church, we have the Lutherans, and now we have the Calvinists, which here in America are known as the Presbyterians. Very similar, very close But theologically, each one, as they started to rediscover truth, came along, had to move out because the leader of that church who had set the doctrine of the Lutheran church died, and so we need another one. Now we have three. And I'm going to foreshorten this a lot because we want to be able to be out of here by 5.30 this afternoon, I'm sure. So many groups came along, but then another one came along where it's called the Anabaptists. And the Anabaptists came along and I said, you know what? The Bible teaches you should be baptized by immersion. 
That's what it dropped. They called it the believer's baptism. That was their... You have to actually believe in order for the baptism to be something, and you had to be baptized by immersion. By this time, they were already sprinkling. Black plague had a lot to do with that. So here they are baptizing by immersion. And the Lutherans came along and said, did Luther teach baptism by immersion? No. Well, then you can't be a Lutheran. And then John Calvin's group came along and said, did John Calvin teach about baptism by immersion? No, he did not. Well, then you can't be a Calvinist. So now what we have to happen is we have the Catholic Church. We have the Lutheran Church. We have the Calvinists slash Presbyterians. And now we have the Baptists. A separate church. And along came another group that says, well, we believe in the seventh day as the Sabbath, and that, that we keep that, so now we have the Seventh-day Baptist church. And things started splitting, 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 splitting. Because they were all founded on, is this what the leader believed? And if the leader did not believe it, it's not part of his teaching, then we can't accept it, we can't have that. So the Baptist church got going in all its different varieties, etc., going around. Sometimes churches are built on the process of a single text that they have broke off. Well, are you familiar with the Millerites? The Millerites came along and the uh, William Miller is quite a story of William Miller. And he, uh, he came along and he began uh, discovering that he believed Jesus was going to come. Actually, in um, 1843 was his original thing. And I just happened to have a copy of the chart that William Miller would hold up and preach from. It was actually, this is the proper size. It's not a shrink size. This is the size that he would use for his meetings. You notice it closes in 1843. Do you see that? And it says at the bottom, it is the great event, excuse me, God's, uh, I can't read it upside down, God's everlasting kingdom, meaning Jesus was going to come in 1843. And you see all the symbols that he had put in there that are found in Daniel and Revelation uh, that are put there in this particular chart. I was going to tell you that this was the original one that I had happen, that I got from him. But we were not close, William Miller and I. (laughs) But it happens to be, I have written right on the top of facsimile, so I probably can't sell that story to you. So anyway... He took that chart all around and shared that with him. And what happened as part of the process was we had the Great Awakening. And the Great Awakening that came along and all across North America and Europe, there were these great meetings that would get together and these people would come together. Now, if you are paying attention on October 22, in which Samuel S. Snow said that's the day, October 22, 1844, that Jesus will appear, uh, will come in the clouds of heaven, If you've been paying attention, you probably realize he did not show up on October 22, 1844. So what happened with that group? That group, those early believers, those called Millerites or Advent believers, those believers were devastated that Jesus did not show up. And they divided into many groups. One group said, when there was one group said, oh, we're not believing anything, and they went back to their old churches or they stopped believing altogether. Others began to divide into other groups. In fact, one of the parts that came out of it was Jehovah Witnesses that came out of that group. Most of them don't know that, but that's they, they came from the Willer, Millerite movement. So along in the 1850s, in the 1850s, came a group together that became our heritage, our leg of that, that broke off, 
They came and went through that situation. And they got together and said, what in the world happened? And they began to organize and began to study their Bible together, put together. And they asked the question among themselves, how can we avoid the same problem happening? How can we do that? How can we avoid what misinterpreting a Bible prophecy like that? But how can we avoid getting stuck in the process like the Lutherans did, like the Presbyterians did, like the Anabaptists did, like the Seventh-day Baptists did? How can we get, keep from getting stuck in that way? And they adopted right in the very start, and they grouped together, that we would base all of our teachings, like from Luther, on the Bible and the Bible only which is a valid principle that came out of the Protestant Reformation. So they saw themselves saw themselves as an outflow of the Reformation. They saw those early Adventists saw, we are following in the footsteps of the Reformation because we found truth in the Roman Catholic Church. There's some truth in there. We found truth in Lutheranism. We found truth in Calvinism. We found truth in Anabaptists, the Huguenots, uh, Seventh-day Baptists. We found all these. And it was Rachel Oaks Preston, a Seventh-day Baptist, who actually gave and prompted us to look at the Seventh-day Sabbath. So their principle behind it, and this is important, their principle behind the everything is we'll let the Bible be our guide. We're going to let the scriptures dictate how we are going to be, how we're going to be. And so they said the Bible and the Bible only, that is going to be the background of it, and that's going to be. Therefore, out of those Bible, and they had Sabbath conferences, they called, out of those Bible study events that lasted some time, out of them came the idea of the proclamation of the Sabbath more fully. Now, I was over here at Fort Lauderdale years ago, and I was going to the Evangelism Explosion program from, uh, at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. And while they had pastors from all over the country that were there, and I was going through their program, trying to learn about their program, about sharing the gospel of Christ in personal settings. And um, as, I was, as I was going through, I was standing in line um, for some event, I can't remember, and right across from me, I noticed on a name badge was, a, was another pastor from the Seventh-day Baptist Church. <laughs> and he looked at me, and I looked at him, and he looked at my badge, and he said, you're a Seventh-day Adventist, and I said, yes, and, and you're a Seventh-day Baptist, I, or you would be wearing a wrong name tag or something, I don't know. So I said, yes, yes, I, I am, and he said, so then he said, well, happy Sabbath to you type of thing, you know, Shabbat Shalom, and I said Shabbat Shalom, because it was the Sabbath day, it was Saturday. And I said, it's so good to meet you, and I, I said, it's like having a brother, and he says, yes, we, we uh, at our seminary where we learn, we use your books on the Sabbath. And I said, what? He said, we use your Seventh-day Adventist teachings about the Sabbath at our seminary. And I said, well, great, like what? He named several of them. I said, oh, yeah, 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 we use those too. Um, it'd be nice if we use our own books at our own space. So I said, oh, that's great. That's great. We, we do that. We reclaim the Sabbath more fully type of thing. Because more fully, Adventists saw that the Sabbath had something important to connect with another great truth out of Scripture. Instead of seeing 
many little boxes of truth. Those early believers tended to see a truth where it all encompassed everything together in Jesus Christ. And so they saw that. And so they, Berlin, here's an example of the Seventh-day Baptist Church. They're a Seventh-day Church of God and all kinds of things now. But they'd never come to claim the Sabbath more fully as Adventists. We'll spend some time and another time about that. And the sanctuary judgment was a truth that they came across about what's happening and how it applies to 1844 and all kinds of things that they were able to establish because they wanted to let the Bible be their guide. That was a principle behind how it was to be. We're going to let the Bible open up before us and show us what is truth. And we have to have an open spirit to it. Now, Ellen and James White were reluctant to accept the Seventh-day Sabbath. Did you know that? And they, were, they were reluctant about that. Oh, I don't know if we need to do that. It was the encouragement of Joseph Bates, who was a sea captain, and his exploring the scriptures and sharing with them in those Sabbath conferences, they came to see this is clearly taught in the Bible. Clearly taught in the Bible. So they began to print. And here's an example. They said, we are going to have present truth. They said, we're going, we want to make sure that we find out what is the truth for the day today. How is this Bible speaking to us today? And so that required them to look and to find out that present truth. Here's a picture of the broadside. Can you see? Printing was terribly expensive, um, even in with the movable press. But it was terribly expensive. So they tried to jam, if you've ever seen their tiny, tiny print, and put as much on a single page as they could, possibly could. And so that's why you can't read it. You probably couldn't read it anyway. But Ellen White made a comment that said this. She said, there is more light to be found. In other words, there's more truth to be found. Which then opened the door within the Adventism to say, if there's more light to be found, we better be listening. We better be open. We better be exposed to that. We better find it. And when someone comes up with things, we better learn about it. Better happen. So what happened is they got organized. They developed a biblical research committee. And in that committee, the committee was to look and to continue to search the scriptures to see if God was sharing some new light with us. So it did not become stagnant. It did not become... So we do not follow the teaching and the dogma of uh, Ellen White, we focus on the teaching of Scripture. The Scriptures are what are to be the backbone about it, to have it happen. So that group began to look, do we have present truth to have happen? So that happens is that how this works in practicality is is someone um, says, I have a new, I think I'm, found something and discovered something in the Bible I think is crucially important. And I think we need to talk about it and going and begin to write about it. And so they said, okay, okay. So, so they say, the committee will meet with you and will listen to what you have to say. And usually those come in written 
uh, forms. You make a presentation in written form, and you open your Bibles, and they sit around with you, and they think about it, and they talk about it, they look with it about it, and they examine those things with the, with the person who's brought it up, no matter what their background is, but is this... Now, there are some things that are absolutely foolish that, you know, people sometimes believe, but... But if it's worthwhile, they will listen. They prepared to listen. That's the purpose of it. Under the concept that God has not revealed to us all the light. He has new light to give us. Well, what happened if we're going to walk together in history here a little bit? That all changed a little bit. What, what happened here? So, Oh, back to the reformers. Uh, they picked up the concept of the reformers. And I, I'll be with you here, here. So what happened in Dallas, Texas? What happened in Dallas, Texas, in 1980 was a general conference session, and what was presented was the statement of the 27 beliefs. Prior to that, we did not have those official statements. What we had was, we had, this is what we believe on this, what we believe on that, et cetera, et cetera. But the Bible was to be the, the backstop. Scripture, teach scripture. But in uh, 1980, the... Um, General Conference, uh, leadership administration was saying, we need to have something that we can give to people, say, this is our positions on these things. People are asked, and it's, it's kind of hard to define with them. We can't sit down and give them all Bible studies. Can't we just have something as a sheet to be able to give to them so that they will show that? There was a broader discussion that took place, and part of the discussion focused around the concept of the Bible is our background, not a list of dogma. We do not have a creed. The Bible is our creed, they said. But eventually, the delegates at the General Conference voted those 27. We've added one more since then. There are 28. But added those principles. Now, of the 28, only 13 of them are required for church membership. There are only 13 that are. But the rest give the kind of teaching. This is what Seventh-day Adventists basically believe. Well, I'll tell you. When you have a church of 20 million or so, spread around the world in many different cultures, there tend to be some diversity of opinion. (laughs) I'll never forget. I was in college, and I was a junior theology major. And we were having a Bible conference. And it was Friday evening, and we were all sitting there, and one of the Bible, uh, one of the professors at the religion department was speaking. And one of the other religion department professors, um, when he kind of got through, stood up, and they had this animated discussion back and forth, sharing different views about a back and forth. In front of all of us. They're, well, no, I don't agree with that. Blah, 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 blah. And went on, and, well, no, I don't think that's right. Blah, 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 blah. And they went back in a very friendly, non-threatening. And I'm sitting there watching this. For the first time I'd ever seen professors who really knew their scriptures and really knew the languages and the theology were going back and forth because they had differences of opinions and views. And either one of them sounded good. And I think they were. But it opened my mind to the reality that within Adventism, we are able to have differences of opinion, different views on Scripture, and still call each other brothers and sisters. We're able to do that. 
still have that. And I believe that's incredibly important. Because, you see, we don't always have to agree on everything. We don't always have to agree. So I think it's important that you, for yourself, be able to understand and have your understanding, your concepts. I like to listen to you because I learned from my laity many things, many great principles. Robert was sharing some things. He opened my eyes to think, oh, yeah, oh, that would be incredible. That could be true, yeah. Type of thing got me thinking. Never thought in that area before. So those kind of things can, can go back and forth and have happened. So it is in a new light. And so the question is, is this new light that God is giving to us and that God happened? Well, there are realities we need to face. And the reality is there are lots of pressures on church administrators. There are. I've never been a church administrator on the conference or level uh, before. I've sat on the executive committee, but I know that there are pressures that go to these men. We need to pray for our leaders. So, so there are pressures that they're put under. And often that pressure that happens is there is a call for unity. Call for unity. Now, I've never served in the Marine Corps. I had a Bible teacher who was a uh, United States Marine during the Korean War. He, he was a young fellow, youngest captain, I think, ever in the war zone. And he, uh, he, was a, he, he drank, drank a lot. He cussed a lot before he became a Christian. Cussed a lot, chased women a lot. He was a great Marine. And... Um, so in in the Marine Corps, in the Marine Corps, um, when you're in the Marine Corps, you give up certain things when you join the Marines. And the reality is, you take orders from someone else. All the orders come from someone else. There's always somebody up high enough above you who has an order, and yours is basically to do as you are told. Isn't that right? If you're in the military, if you've been in the military, you're basically told. So they tell you what to wear, when to wear it, when to get up, when to go to bed. They tell you how to tie your tie, how to fix your belt, how to shine your shoes, how to make your bed, what clothes and how to hang here and there and everywhere, how to carry your gun, how do you do all this. All of this is all told to you. You simply do what you're told and say, yes, sir, or yes, sergeant, whatever it is. I do that. If you've been in the, I haven't been in the military, but that's what I gather. So... You get the orders from up the chain. And in reality, they need to be that way, don't they? In reality, you need to have an ordered thing. You can't have a lot of people out there just having their own personal opinions. You know, well, I don't think we should wear that, or I don't want to wear that today, or, you know, I don't, don't, you know, blah, 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 blah. Can't have that. So that's why the military forms that hierarchy. In Roman Catholicism, as we're talking about in our class, there is that hierarchy structure. That hierarchy structure. And at the very top of that, it currently, is Pope Francis. He occupies the very top. The Holy Father, he is called. The, the Holy See there in, um, at the Vatican happens. In reality, the parishioner has no voice in the theology or the methods, or what the church does. Absolutely none. You come, you do, you receive Mass, you do as you're told. Very much like the... I want to be careful. But very much like the structure in the Marine Corps. I've happened like that. So in the Marines, you, if you don't get along very well, and you get, they discharge you. If, you, if you're too much trouble, 
out the door you go, you're gone. And you make it happen. So I was curious to see on our world headquarters there. You see that where it says world headquarters? Seventh-day Adventist Church. This is off our new building, the General Conference. It says world headquarters. It didn't used to say those things. And this developed after World War II that they started saying headquarters. Doesn't that have kind of a military kind of feel to it, is it to you? Well, you can understand. They came out of World War II. A lot of them had been serving. They didn't do it. And it's much easier to say, well, these are the headquarters, because that's kind of how they went through the military, through World War II. And they were, this is the headquarters. We have the Florida Conference headquarters, as if we are giving the orders from the general conference, that kind of... I think it's time we may want to rethink that, but they haven't asked my opinion. But the, but the concept, that idea really came out of the military, that we give, this is the top, and everything works down, and goes that other way. In actual fact, in our church, it's not that kind of structure, really. But it gives that impression that that's how it, how it works. So disagreements within the church can be uncomfortable, can't they? You have a disagreement, back and forth, they can be... They can be uncomfortable and, and can have happening. Right now, we are having a disagreement within the church. And we're going to talk about not really the issue, but the process. We're going to talk about the theology of the process after, after uh, at our meeting this afternoon um, about that and whether you want or not to have any input or discussion about that. Nothing forced, it's just everybody can make up their own mind. But disagreements can be uncomfortable. And we are having one now. And it's a struggle. We've gone through struggles before. And survived. There are struggles, disagreements that have happened. And just like those two professors that I had, we can have disagreements here, there, and back and forth. And still be brothers and sisters in Christ. And give each other a hug and be in the kingdom together. Even though we may disagree. And someday, I'm assuming... That when I get to heaven, the Lord may take me aside, not Rick, but me, uh, take me aside and say, you know, Bill, um, I tell you, I, don't, I wouldn't preach that sermon again up here. Uh, that, that's not quite right. So those, those disagreements happen because we are human and we see things different from a wide perspective of views. Do we not? We have them within the church, disagreements. All right, I want to conclude with scripture. All right. Would you find your Bible, John chapter 8? John chapter 8. This is an amazing chapter in John chapter 8. It is an amazing chapter because um, at the very end of it, they try to stone Jesus. They try to kill him. Because he's having this discussion, we're not going to focus on that today. I just want to take a little bit out of it. And if you would look, chapter John, uh, John 8, Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 31. To the Jews, Jesus said, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teachings, you are my disciples. Then you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. It is important that Jesus revealed to us his truth. The truth shall set you free.
Now he goes on, they talk about slavery, being under where never been slaves, etc., etc. He's talking about freedom from sin. The truth that God gives to you brings freedom. And sometimes I wonder if we believe in truth in our world anymore. Does truth matter? And what we've seen lately in the last few months happening around in Washington, D.C., I wonder if truth really matters. It should be to us, should it not? Truth matters. And we can disagree. We can have different things. We come back to those foundations, those pillars, those things that have brought, that came out of the Reformation, have wandered down through 600 years now or something like that, of going down for development. And Ellen White says there's still more light to be seen, to be found. Dear Lord, I thank you. I thank you that you can be with us even if we disagree with one another. In love and kindness, we accept that we don't all have to agree and we don't all see the same things the right, the same way. And that we grow at different levels and different things that we remember that we are brothers and sisters in Christ and that we love and share with each other. In our discussion this afternoon, I ask your spirit walk among us. Be with us as we chat and talk together. May we be followers in the Reformation and always looking to see, Lord, are you showing us something new in the beautiful truth of Christ that we may see our Lord and Savior more dearly and more closely, that we may love him more strongly? Be with us in that regard. In Jesus' name, amen.